Welcome to Engineering Matters. This week, we're revisiting one of our most captivating episodes, delving into the story behind one of the great engineering marvels, the Hoover Dam. Standing at a towering 221 meters, spanning the Colorado River and resisting colossal water pressure, the Hoover Dam remains an enduring symbol of human achievement. In this episode, we hear about the sophisticated techniques employed to prevent cracks, the profound implications the Hoover Dam has had on society, and some of the stories and urban legends that surround its construction. Everybody is convinced that there's people buried in the concrete. And sometimes, even though I'm telling them that there isn't, they don't seem to want to believe me. From an engineering point, they don't want the body in there. Right? They just don't want that. But from a humanistic standpoint, you know that guy. Right? You might know his family, his kids. You want to get him out of there. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and I'm taking you back to 1931, to the story of one of the world's greatest engineering achievements. It saved thousands of farming communities from devastating floods, created a vital water resource for millions of people, and it generates clean electricity that 80 years later still powers California, Nevada and Arizona. Building this titanic wedge of concrete in the desert created over 5,000 jobs during the Great Depression, a time when the US economy was on its knees and unemployment soared to 25% but building it cost more than any federal project ever before. And it resulted in the deaths of over 200 workers, leading to controversial legal battles and secretive out-of-court settlements. It was a project of extremes, developing new engineering solutions that could accelerate construction, but at the same time failing its workers on health and safety. This is the story of the Hoover Dam. Well, my name is Mike Franklin. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a tour guide now at the Hoover Dam. It's called a Bureau of Reclamation Guide. And I got into the tour guide business about eight years ago. Um, so it turns out it fits me. I like to talk every job I've had in my life. I've been in trouble for talking too much, except for this one. Mike says that the severity of the Great Depression was such that workers travelled from across the US, bringing their families and possessions with them in the hope of getting a job on the dam. But politically, it was seen as an economic imperative because you have the Great Depression, right? It's an economic disaster. Uh, they need to get people back to work. So actually, the pressure being brought to bear by Hoover was such that they start the project six months earlier than they had planned. And this causes a problem for the workers because this is before transportation lines were built. It's before any of the living facilities were finished. So considerably, considerable political pressure to get this done. So you had people coming from all over the country to literally the harshest desert in North America for those jobs and didn't have places to live when they got here. As part of the construction agreement with the federal government, Contractor Six Companies Incorporated was required to provide accommodation in Boulder City for 80% of the construction workers and $2 million was provided by the government to construct this new town. The original plan was to build the city ahead of workers arriving, but the contractor was under pressure to begin construction early, which meant labourers arrived with nowhere to live 
and instead had to set up camp in the intensely hot desert where temperatures regularly went over 40 degrees Celsius. They created a tent city that became known as Ragtown and death from heat exhaustion was sadly too common. They started six months early, so a lot of that stuff that was supposed to be built, you know, anticipating the arrival of workers wasn't there yet. So, you know, there was some unhappy people, but in general, people wanted those jobs. So they came out here even earlier than that and were there waiting, pretty much camping out in the lawns of some of the areas where they knew that uh, they were going to be hiring at as soon as everything kicked off. It wasn't until the following year, 1932, that workers were able to move to Boulder City. And just like those workers... Mike lives there too. The thing about Boulder City, you know, you're living in Las Vegas, or, or your bedroom community of it, is there's no gambling in Boulder City. And a lot of your people listening, they may have been to Las Vegas. I mean, we get a lot of people from the UK out here. I've met them throughout the years doing tours. But if you've never had the chance to go to a grocery store, even a grocery store in Nevada, you're going to see 12 slot machines. You go to the gas station, you're going to see 12 slot machines. So saying that there's no gambling in Boulder City it's kind of amazing because we're literally surrounded by it. And that goes back to the history of Boulder City. See, it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't a city. It was a government reservation. So when you were on the government reservation, you, well, it was their rules, right? So there was no gambling. There was no drinking in Boulder City. Now, you can drink since it was incorporated. They, they have their own little brewery here in, in Boulder City. But you cannot gamble still to this day. They basically don't want Boulder City to become what most of the Las Vegas Valley became. You know, when you're driving from Las Vegas to the dam, most of that is actually not Las Vegas. It's Henderson, Nevada. But if you're not a local, you don't know the difference. But so Boulder City wanted to stay small. Today, there's around 16,000 living in the city. And at peak construction, there was around 5,000 workers. And yeah, those not all of them lived in Boulder City, but a lot of them did. Some people lived in Las Vegas to make the commute, but in general, most people lived in Las Vegas or lived in Boulder City. They had a, a road that was built down to the dam site that some people would take to work. They had to use these buses. They had uh, one bus called Big Bertha that would carry apparently up to 150 people down a very narrow, winding, switchback road, uh, apparently that had no steering wheel. It had two alternating brake levers. So one of the nicknames, the workers have nicknames for everything here at the dam. And I guess the nickname for the driver of Big Bertha was the Double Ugly. And it had something to do with those two alternating brake levers that they would steer the truck down the, down the road with. But apparently would also sway. So, yeah, it was a good, uh, good ride to take to work. It'd wake you up in the morning. Riding with the Double Ugly was one of the side effects of a building project in a remote location. Power, roads, railways, water systems, all had to be built to support construction at the site. In fact, power supply came from California, over 300 kilometres away. But there was no alternative. The remote location had unique environmental conditions, which made it perfect for construction of the 220 metre tall concrete arch gravity dam, which is actually a hybrid of two better known dam types, the concrete arch dam and a gravity dam. So not only does it rely on its own mass to resist overturning or sliding along its foundations under the weight of water, it also acts in compression to transmit the force of water into the rock of the sides of the canyon. This 500 mile long canyon region lies right in the middle of the path of the rampaging Colorado River. 
Its strong, hard rock was more than capable of withstanding the transfer of the enormous hydrostatic forces from water pressure that would act on the new concrete walls. Well, strategically, they wanted to put it downstream from the Grand Canyon because um, most of the there's no tributaries that really contribute significant water to the river after once it gets into the lower basin state. So upriver, you have the San Juan, the Green River is a huge river that contributes, and the Colorado itself, starting in the Colorado Rockies. So they wanted to try and get a choke point further downstream, and there was many sites that were looked at. They ironed it down to about three sites. The two that we know of, the two main sites, was Boulder and Black Canyons. The reason for these is they're narrow canyons. It's you know very hard rock. This is part of ancient volcanic lava flows out here. So overall, uh, great places to build the dam. And up until 1929, almost you know two years before they well one year before they start construction, they were going to build it in Boulder Dam, which is why the name Boulder Canyon Project was put on it. But then they decided to go with Black Canyon, and Black Canyon, as it turns out, was narrower. It was easier to drill. They had superior geology. It was closer to rail line access and highway access from Las Vegas. And the channel, there's a channel at the bottom that has a lot of gravel and stuff in it that, that they're going to have to get out. That channel wasn't as deep in Black Canyon. And really, the overall takeaway here is this is going to cost them less, and it's end up, end up going to be able to store more water in Black Canyon. Never before had anyone successfully controlled the Colorado River, which was volatile and unpredictable. Running from the Rocky Mountains in Colorado through New Mexico, Utah and Wyoming, this majestic, powerful river carries snowmelt from the Rocky Mountains along these upper basin states before hitting the high-walled canyon region and then gushing into the lower basin territories of Nevada, Arizona, California and New Mexico. During the winter, flows can be as gentle as a trickling 71 cubic metres per second. But as the snow melts in the spring, the river rapidly picks up pace, peaking up violent flows of over 2,800 cubic metres per second. Now that's around 14% greater than the rate at which water gushes over Niagara Falls. The steep canyon and massive flow rates presented a huge opportunity to the organisation that was going to be responsible for operating and maintaining the dam, the US Bureau of Reclamation. Generating hydroelectric power would pay for the dam's construction. In fact, Dr. Elwood Mead, Commissioner for the Bureau of Reclamation, forecast total hydroelectric power revenue of $373 million over the 50 years following completion. The total cost of the dam and all associated infrastructure to federal government was $165 million. Not only would the hydroelectric power pay for construction, it would pay for construction twice over. I would assume that's probably the same in the UK as people working every day, paying taxes, paying income tax. When those people aren't working, well, the government's not making much money at that point. So how do they pay for it? And that's where the, that's where the electricity comes into play. So basically the plan is to offset the cost of the dam through the years by selling off that electricity to different municipalities. And they pretty much pay for the dam itself in about the mid 80s with the sale of electricity. Power generation, though, was not the main purpose of the dam. Its main purpose was to prevent the destructive floods that had rampaged through farmland adjacent to the Imperial Valley area in Southern California. In the early 1900s, they built their first canal in 1901, and it was successful. This brings many people. They have barley crops. They have alfalfa, dairy, cattle. This is all downstream from where the dam is today. 
in what is known as the Imperial Valley in Southern California. In 1904, that project really ends up failing. And the important thing to note on this is this is all private, right? So these, these plots of land were sold to these farmers and promised for delivery of water. And because of the high sediment flow in the Colorado, they, it clogs up. So when the low waters come, you know, they're not going to have enough water. They tried several schemes to, to clear it. It doesn't work. So people are talking about lawsuits. There was a lot of pressure being brought onto the original developers. So that causes them to try and do another inlet into their canal in Mexico because there was some pressure by the Bureau of Reclamation that was formed in the early 1900s as well to, you know, basically watch over these people that are, are doing these canals and stuff. So they decide to go into Mexico where that's not a factor. And they don't make what's called a head gate. So the engineer knows that this is a bad idea, but there's a lot of pressure to make this work. So they end up going through with it, and it was an even bigger failure. So it, it was a flood, and it rushes through, and it floods all these farms that were starting to do well again because he did get some water to return. But this goes on for two years. The flooding of this valley goes on for two years. It turns what was known as the Salton Sink, which is the salty area, the basin there in the Imperial Valley, into what we know as the Salton Sea. And it looked like that was never going to close. It actually takes about seven weeks of nonstop dumping from different rail cars, you know, to get it to stop. So they finally do get it stopped. And even after that, we have more flooding. 1910, they built levees around Yuma and around the Imperial Valley to try and keep waters from, again, flooding those valleys out. And those levees have to be expanded every year another foot because of the silt depositing in the bottom of the river. So it's a constant problem. And that's the background as to why, you know, the Bureau of Reclamation looks at this and says, hey, this is a bigger problem and we're going to have to step in because they felt that no one entity, one company couldn't solve this problem. Neither could one company build the dam. The construction contract was awarded to a joint venture of six contractors and was signed on the 20th of April 1931 by president of six companies incorporated, Warren Bechtel. Their $49 million bid was over $4 million cheaper than the nearest competitor, the Arundel Corporation. Placing concrete for the dam was the second most expensive item in the bid, but at $13 million, the most costly was construction of the four diversion tunnels that would divert the mighty Colorado River away from the riverbed and enable construction of the dam itself. Well, the first thing is, once you start building the dam, the first thing you're going to have to do is divert the river. The first two years are going to be just drilling and blasting diversion tunnels. Now, originally they wanted to build two, but the Bureau of Reclamation said that's not going to be enough if we get flooding, so they had to double that. That was one of their provisions. So they ended up drilling drilling four diversion tunnels. Each of the tunnels is 17 metres in diameter and 1,200 metres long. To get these done in a time frame, because the government is going to fine you about $3,000 a day for every day that you're over construction. Yes, $3,000 a day as a penalty for the project being late. And this is a huge driver for the man who was put in charge of construction, a man known to everyone on site as Hurry Up Crow. So one of the main guys that everybody talks about was Frank Crow, right? And the reason is because, well, he was a very effective man. He worked for the Bureau of Reclamation as well at one point. He quits in 1925 to work for, I think it was called Morris Knudsen, which was one of the six company or one of the seven firms that joined the six companies. And he was the general superintendent. 
And a lot of people described him, well, it's quoted here as the foremost dam builder in the United States. Lots of the workers, though, didn't call him that. They called him Hurry Up Crow because that seemed to be what he said every time he showed up on the job site was hurry up. But he also has a loyal following of workers. So it's not just those guys that called him Hurry Up Crow, but he has a lot of regular construction guys that follow him from project to project. They, you know, they like this guy and he gives them work and they basically show up and work for him every time he's got one of these projects. They call him the old man, even though he was in his 40s. So he wasn't really that old. Frank Crow had tunnelers working at a blistering pace. Construction happened 24 hours a day in three shifts, with workers only having three days off every year. But it was some technical innovations that really accelerated progress. So they've got to get these done. And they used a new technology called a drilling jumbo. And this platform, we think about it today, at least when I look at it, I'm thinking the first time I read about it, it doesn't really seem like it's that complex. But at the time, nobody had really thought of this. They take this big truck, it's basically a 10-ton truck, and they're going to build a scaffolding on it. And they're going to put drills on it. That gives them the ability to drive that scaffolding into the tunnel and drill the holes, put the dynamite in it, and then drive that whole scaffolding back out. The alternative to that is taking the scaffolding down, putting it up, putting your drills in place, taking that out again, and doing that you know, process over and over and over again, which... You think about it when you're first starting a tunnel, maybe that's not that big of a deal. But now when you're going, you know, thousands of feet into the earth, you know, you're talking about a lot of transportation of scaffolding and drills and workers. So this is going to expedite the process for them. Development of these drilling jumbos was credited to an assistant superintendent called Bernard Williams. His initial versions were made of timber and these were later replaced with steel. As Mike explained, the method involved driving the jumbos in, workers mounting the frames and using handheld drills to create the blast holes. Dynamite was then placed and the tunnel cleared for blasting. Trucks then drove in to remove the blasted rock. And at 17 metres diameter, the tunnel face was too large for the jumbo to cover the whole area in one. So the process was split in half. Excavation was carried out in three phases from the top down. They end up getting it done a year earlier than projected. So that, I think, sets up the whole project getting done early by being able to facilitate those tunnels getting built way earlier than they thought that they were going to be built. Although this was fast, current technology is predictably faster and drilling jumbos have come a long way since 1931. But would drill and blast even be used on these 17-metre diameter hard rock diversion tunnels today? Would mechanised tunnelling be an option? Well, so far, the largest tunnel boring machines used in the world in hard rock have been 14.4 metres in diameter and were made by Robbins for the Niagara Tunnel, which is also a hydropower project. It was for a third water supply tunnel built beneath the city of Niagara Falls to transport water from the Niagara River to the Sir Adam Beck Hydroelectric Generating Station. What's more, at just 1.2 kilometres in length, the tunnels are probably too short to justify the investment in a tunnel boring machine, which are typically used for lengths of five kilometres or more. So building these diversion tunnels today would likely still use drill and blast. But Vice President of Underground Tunnelling Drills for Sweden's Sandvik, Pekka Nieminen, tells me that the process has changed a lot since these early jumbos were created. I showed him a photo of the first ever drilling jumbo as used on the Hoover Dam. And he said it had nothing in common with today's technology, which is automated and uses hydraulic motors rather than compressed air. 
today, today the rockers are hydraulic, so they are much more efficient and they are much more powerful. And they, they are mounted on the feeds and booms which are then mounted on the machine. It has then a computer to, to control where to drill and how deep to drill, and also controlling the, the drilling itself. Pekka says that two modern jumbos will be used simultaneously on a project like this today, excavating the 17-metre face in two sections, the heading and then a main bench. Somewhat different from the original method, that bored the small square heading at the top of the tunnel, followed by the main bench and leaving a significant invert and wings either side of the heading at the top. And what's more, projects today would use rock bolting and sprayed concrete to protect workers and support the tunnel. Pekka says a Sandvik DT1231i would be his recommendation for this job. Sandvik DT1231i would be my recommendation for such, such project. Two pieces side by side. This drilling jumbo and modern drilling jumbos like it have electric motors with air-conditioned cabins with protection from noise and vibration. Interestingly, it can drill up to 6.2 metres into the rock, which would accelerate progress compared to the 3 metre depths that were achieved on the original project. An excavation would be carried out in two, not three phases. Sophisticated ventilation systems would also be employed. Back in 1931, the tunnelers used dynamite to blast the rock. Would that be used today? No, uh, dynamite is is nitroglycerin-based explosive and it's... It's causing uh, poisonous gases, so we, uh, it's not used anymore in, in uh, civil works. Uh, today, it's uh, em- em- emulsions based on ammonium nitrate, so li- 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 liquid uh, explosives which are pumped in the hole. Construction of the Mammoth Tunnels began in 1931, and from the outset it became clear that this was going to be one of the most deadly parts of the construction project for labourers. 1931 is actually one of the hottest years on record. Out here, you had 120 degrees Fahrenheit, about 49 Celsius. And one of the big things, the heat was excessive. So in the first year, they have a lot of deaths. I think it was like 12 or 13 deaths just related to heat. But then another thing that happens is they have to get all of that loose rock out, right? So yeah, they've got their scaffolding, they've got their bit drilling jumbo, and they're drilling all this but you still have all this loose rock. How are you going to get all of that loose rock out of that tunnel? So they're using trucks. Again, they're using dump trucks. These are, again, those same 10-ton trucks. They're gas. Right? These are gasoline trucks. And again, we're going hundreds of feet into canyon. It turns out it was pretty poorly ventilated. And these guys are using or breathing a lot of that CO2 from the exhaust of those trucks. So there was problems. We had a lot of people that were dying because of you know, carbon monoxide poisoning. So much so that they, workers actually had filed lawsuits in court. They lose those lawsuits. Um, pretty soon after some of those court cases were settled, you actually have some of the jurors admitting to taking bribes. Um, and the remaining cases were actually settled out of court about 1936. By maintaining that the workers died from natural causes such as pneumonia, the contractor was not liable to pay compensation. Of the 213 total deaths related to the project, only 96 were recorded as industrial accidents and therefore liable for payments to families. To this day, we still don't know what the settlements related to the tunnelling deaths were. What we do know is that there were three potential sources of toxic gas affecting workers in the tunnels. Fumes from the dynamite explosive, gases from the engines of the diesel trucks that were driven in and out to transport away the muck, as well as the post-explosion dust from the rock itself. 
Records show that during 1931 and 1932, there were 21 deaths from pneumonia. To this day, we don't know how those cases were resolved. Well, that's the whole part about settling out of court is there's no liability that they're going to admit to. And as a matter of fact, we don't know what those settlements were. Before we go on to talk about the construction of the dam itself, we need to consider that this location was remote and a range of services had to be installed to support the project. New railways were a critical part of this. A 35-kilometre line was built as a branch line from the Salt Lake City to Los Angeles line, running from Las Vegas into Boulder City. And another 17-kilometre line was constructed from Boulder City to the dam site, and this was also connected by rail to the aggregate mines. A new highway was also required, as well as power to get electricity to the site. The government had to pay for over 320 kilometres of power lines running from California, costing over $1.5 million. Once the infrastructure was in place for bringing materials into the dam site, it had to be lifted down into the canyon. And this is where Crow's experience on other dams made a big difference. He introduced an overhead lifting system that enabled construction. This is actually one of Frank Crow's inventions. That's what he was most known for is overcoming problems. Now, this wasn't the first time that anything like this has been used. They've been using what they call overhead delivery systems for different projects, different dams as well. But he ends up putting cranes onto rail line. So these cranes can move the entire job site. So on any given day, you can have it covering different areas. It allows you to not have to build a crane every you know, 30 feet. So he can move these around. And it makes it very, very versatile for them to be able to get systems or getting concrete or parts or even people. Because sometimes these cranes would lift carts full of people down to the job site. Really anywhere on the site that you wanted to do this. They also have a lot of different cranes, stationary in-place cranes that help with things like the, um, I don't want to say the intake tunnels or intake towers. But that was the big thing with these overhead hoists. They could carry each one, each one of the hoists that are out on the cable systems can carry up to about 20 tons. And that was more than capable of lifting up 16 ton buckets of concrete. The biggest single commodity they had to shift was concrete. The dam, spillways, intake towers and powerhouse required over 3 million cubic metres of it. Almost all of that concrete was brought down on those cable systems. But the most critical challenge for contractors was to place the concrete without jeopardising the integrity of the entire structure. They basically, they use a block construction when they're building it. And that's to try and minimise that shrinkage crack. There was a, a problem with a dam in, I think it was 1928, early 1920s maybe, in California that developed these types of cracks. So there was a lot of focus on trying to prevent those. So they use smaller boxes and they're going to use a dry mix of concrete, which again, apparently helps with that, uh, that process. They're using mostly dry mix in the winter. They would switch to a, a different mix where 40 of it would be standard, standard concrete, but most of it was a fairly dry mix. Cracks in a dam? A dam that's holding back over 32 cubic kilometres of water would be catastrophic. The volume of water is so enormous because construction of the Hoover Dam created the US's largest man-made reservoir in Lake Mead, which stretches for an incredible 177 kilometres and is 13 kilometres across at its widest point. So to maintain the integrity of the concrete, engineers implemented two key solutions. The first was to build the dam in a series of blocks so that the heat of hydration created as cement and water react together could dissipate from the surface. The second was to cool the concrete as it was poured. 
extensive testing from engineers at the US Bureau of Reclamation determined that the concrete would be cooled to 7 degrees Celsius at the upstream face of the dam and 18 degrees at the downstream face. Considering that temperatures in this part of the world average over 40 degrees centigrade, this was not easy to achieve. Yeah, they invented a system where they have a refrigeration unit that uses an ammonia brine substance to cool that water down to just above freezing. And then they're going to pump it through one-inch steel pipes for up to 72 hours. One of the biggest rumours that's persisted to this day is that people are buried in the concrete of the Hoover Dam. Everybody is convinced that there's people buried in the concrete. And sometimes, even though I'm telling them that there isn't, they don't seem to want to believe me. Uh, But there just isn't. You know, it was kind of a a facet of how it was, was built. We hit on the small blocks, right, to kind of prevent those those fractures. Well, when you put when you put in a 16 ton bucket of concrete into one of these individual boxes, the frames where they're creating the box of concrete, the level of the concrete you know, I've heard different numbers on this. I've heard up to an inch, two inches, four inches. I think it's going to depend on the size of the box because they get bigger as they go back towards the lake, right? So the lake side, the blocks are wider, and as they get towards the, the river, they're narrower. So the, the levels will be different. But even with, my, even with, let's say, four inches, you got another 78 seconds before another bucket comes in to deliver you concrete. You can get the body out of there. And from an engineering point, they don't want the body in there. Right? They just don't want that. But from a humanistic standpoint, you know that guy. Right? You might know his family, his kids. You want to get him out of there. Right? You wouldn't want that to happen to you. So it just was not something that happened here at the dam. Now, people, there was an accident that I read about that somebody does get buried in concrete. One of the frames gave way while the concrete was still forming. So it pours out on top of him, and that guy does die, unfortunately. But they get his body out. You know, number one, the concrete has to be in boxes. So we just can't let concrete randomly pour out. That's got to be taken care of. And, and then they're able to recover his body. So although there were 96 industrial deaths and more than 100 others from things like heat exposure, pneumonia or natural causes, none of those people are buried in the dam. Using the blockwork system with the refrigeration, construction of the dam took two years, running from 1933 until May 1935. Although this method was innovative for the time, I wanted to find out how we'd build a dam like this today. So I asked an expert. My name's Alan Warren. Um, I'm a technical director with Mott McDonald in uh, Bristol. Uh, I have over 30 years experience in dams and reservoirs. um, And uh, I'm the global practice lead for dams and reservoirs within Mott McDonald. Alan says that construction methods, particularly around concrete technology, have moved on. So there have been major changes in how we construct large gravity and some arch dams since the 1930s. And the major development is roller compacted concrete called RCC. This has been quite commonly used since around the 1970s or 1980s. So RCC is both a material and a technique. The material, it makes use of a pozzolan such as fly ash, um, fly ash being a byproduct of coal-fired power stations. Uh, and the fly ash acts as a cement replacement material, which greatly reduces the heat of hydration as the concrete cures. And that means that large dams can be constructed very rapidly by placing the concrete in layers and compacting it using vibratory rollers without any need for com- complex cooling systems. So with this system, the construction is 
um, usually continuous from the base of the dam to the crest, and it's rather like building an embankment dam. You spread the RCC um, and you, you roll a vibrated. Uh, there's, so there's, in this case, there's no need to sequence the work to allow individual blocks of concrete to cool before placing the next block adjacent or on top, as they did with the Hoover, Hoover Dam. Preparation of the canyon walls for dam construction would not be carried out in the same way either. Of all the site activities, this work was the most treacherous and terrifying. High scalers suspended from long ropes would swing around the canyon walls hundreds of feet in the air using jackhammers, dynamite and compressed air to remove protruding rock and create a smooth, even slope for the dam to connect with. Such was the agility and strength required for this work that these men were more like acrobats. Spectators would come and watch them swinging hundreds of feet in the air. As they hung from their ropes, the face was drilled, charges were detonated and unsurprisingly, falling rock was a huge threat. To protect themselves, these daredevil workers dipped their cloth hats in coal tar to create a primitive hard hat. In fact, this was so effective that six companies incorporated actually ordered hard hats for all workers. Thanks to this innovation, a rumour persists that hard hats were invented on this project, but Mike says that it was not the first construction project to see hats dipped in tar. The only thing that I can find in what I have read about the original use of hard hats was that this was the first project where they were issued to everybody. Now, that's a big difference in that they were required to wear them. They weren't required to wear them because it was so hot here in the canyon. If you don't want to wear them, they're not going to make you do it. Um, But people were issued them, but they weren't invented here. Now, the same processes, yeah, the same processes that people use, though, to invent them were used here. Guys were taking the hats. If they were like a baseball type hat, they would take one facing backwards, one facing frontwards to utilize the brims, right? And then they would dump them in things like tar, sometimes glue. Um, whatever, to make them, you know, hard and, and hopefully save them from getting a, a rock in their head from above them, right? So they used a lot of those same processes. Um, but there was a company that was making hard hats at the time that was actually using similar hats, and they uh, contracted with the six companies to provide those. Nevertheless, records show that 20 of these high scalers were killed due to falling rock, making this one of the most deadly activities on site. Not surprisingly, Alan says preparing canyon walls would not be carried out this way today. I mean, health and safety practices do vary around the world, but generally speaking, um, sort of rock cleaning that you've described would not be done by high scalers anywhere, uh, I'd like to think. Um, it would be done by mechanical means. Typically, you, you, you would bench back on the canyon side, so you may um, drill and blast uh, slopes, cut slopes, to create berms and, and benches on, on the valley sides um, to create stable um, slopes and ac- means of access to the sides. In some cases, you can provide the, the top of the dam crest itself to do um, sort of more, more detailed work in rock cleaning, but the idea of um, of people being suspended from the canyon walls with jackhammers. I think that's long gone. Despite being built 82 years ago, Alan says that one of the most interesting things about the dam is that it's not yet reached its full strength. Chief of the US Bureau of Reclamation Engineering Department, Britt Bowen, says that during construction, the concrete measured between 3,000 and 4,000 psi. The last set of cores taken in the mid-1990s showed that strength had doubled to around 7,000 psi. The dam is getting stronger every day. 
as well as continuing to provide power and water to millions of people in California, Nevada and Arizona. In fact, the 2000 megawatt hydroelectric power station not only paid for the project, it creates around 4.5 billion kilowatt hours per year, providing 8 million people with clean energy. And all this for a project which was delivered early. Its completion in March 1936 was two years ahead of the expected schedule. It did. actually came in under budget. So those two things, it comes in under time, it comes in under budget. And uh, as a lot of people are here fond of saying, it's probably the last federal project to do both of those things. Its story is one of ingenuity and tragedy, of necessity and desperation, of progress and oppression. And today, its legacy lives on as one of the world's most famous pieces of engineering, creating a sustainable source of power and water for millions of people. 